Perhaps you know of the significance of the number 925. You know the significance of 925 or 0.925? You might know the significance of it as it is in particular related to silver. Perhaps you've had the unenviable task. You may just like silver and know the significance of 925, or perhaps you've had the unenviable task of uh, receiving an inheritance or going through your parents' possessions after they have died, and you come across uh, perhaps a silver-looking tea set or a silver-looking plate, and if you've done this, then immediately what you ask yourself is, is this real or not? Is this the real deal? Is this actually silver or is this just silver plate? Because if it's silver plate, you may just throw it away. It's not a lot of good. You might not like it, or you might put it in the giveaway pile. But if it's silver, if it's the true thing, you want to know that so that you can set it aside and treat it appropriately, whatever that might be for you. So what you do, and you probably Googled it and said, how do I figure out if something is real silver or not? And you saw that on real silver, if you turn it over, is the number 925, 92.5% silver. That's what sterling silver is. It is what we think of as silver, is an alloy. Uh, that other percentage is mixed in there because, like a lot of metals, or precious metals anyway, pure silver in and of itself would not hold its shape well, so it needs some other metals to be worked into it so that it has a solid consistency force. 2.5% pure, which is to say, it's true. It is silver. And our passage today, while of course including a reference to silver, uh, the silver that was taken out of the temple of Baal Berith in order to pay for an army of thugs, our passage today can be viewed through the lens of whether or not something is genuine. Is it the real article? Is it authentic? Is it true? Is it what it actually claims to be? Is it real or is it an imitation? Or to use the words that are found in this text in particular, to use the words that are found in verse 16 of the text, verse 19 of the text, what we are concerned with here in this passage is the question of good faith and integrity. Are you acting with good faith and integrity or not? Excuse me. Specifically, what we've got before us is the call to good faith and integrity, the failure of good faith and integrity, and the keeping of good faith and integrity. We begin them with the call to good faith and integrity. Now, before we get into, I'm going to have to have you pull your Bibles out here for a moment if you're using the bulletin. Before we get into Judges chapter 9 and this incredible fable that is told by Jotham, in which this is referenced, this call to good faith and integrity, as he is, he's standing on Mount Gerizim and he is speaking unto and into Shechem. Okay, so Mount Gerizim is just to the west of Shechem. There's Gerizim here, there's Ebal here, and Shechem is kind of right here at the base, at the pass between the two. So, so Jotham is standing up here speaking into uh, Shechem. Before we get to that, we've got to go back in history just a little bit. So if you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn to Joshua chapter 24. Sometimes when you're looking at the places and the names and the 
the, you know, the rivers and the mountains, the locales of what takes place in biblical history. It's not essential that we understand all of those, but sometimes it is, and this is one of those times where we've really got to understand the place so that we can understand what is taking place here. And that brings us back to this chapter. I, I, Joshua chapter 24, uh, this, is prob- this probably took place several generations before what we're reading. It's only about 10 pages back in your Bible as the last chapter in the book of Joshua. So Joshua 24 is the climactic scene of the conquest of the promised land in which Joshua is leading the people in a ceremony of covenant renewal. 24 verse 1, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders and the heads, the judges and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. So at the climactic moment of the conquest, when God has given all things and Joshua is about to go and lie and die and be with his fathers, he brings them to Shechem to renew this covenant. Now, you don't have to turn back this far, but in Joshua chapter 8, we saw the fulfillment of what Moses had commanded the people earlier, which was also a scene of the covenant, and that was also taking place on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And if you recall it, it was where some of the people were on one of the mountains and some of the people were on another mountain, and they were reading the blessings of the law from one mountain and the curses of the law from the other mountain with Shechem sitting right here. So that having taken place, then we come to Joshua 24 and this renewal ceremony that takes place in Shechem. And as we work through, Joshua works through the history of what God has done, and he comes to verse 14 of chapter 24, where he now transitions into the command that he's giving to the people. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And those two words there are the exact same words from our text. So when Jotham, from the top of the mountain, is saying to them, have you acted in good faith and integrity? This isn't the first time we've heard a call to act in good faith and integrity. He's saying, did you do what you were commanded to do at Shechem back in Joshua 24? Because Joshua called you then to serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Now, how would you have done that? Well, well, we don't have to look at all of chapter 24. How would they have done that? They would have obeyed the law, they would have inclined their hearts towards the Lord, and they would have stayed pure, which is to say they would have put away the gods of the Canaanites. They wouldn't have worshipped the gods of the Canaanites. So, They, the people that is, they pledge their integrity, they pledge their fidelity, they say to Joshua, to one another, to the Lord, that's what we want to do. We're with you. Now that's the climactic scene here where Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And they basically say, us too. 
That's what we want to do. We will serve the Lord. We pledge then our good faith and our integrity, our fidelity, our troth. And then Joshua sets up, if you recall the passage, or it's right at the, it, at, towards the end there of Joshua 24, Joshua sets up a stone under a terebinth tree, okay, which is another, it's a type of an oak tree. And he sets up there a stone of witness, which brings us then back to Judges chapter 9 and kind of provides the context for us to understand what Jotham is saying as he's speaking from Mount Gerizim and he's speaking to Abimelech, he's speaking to the kind of army of worthless fellows, and he's speaking to the leaders of Shechem who have just made Abimelech king. They've committed the atrocity of going and killing Gideon's, Jeroboam, remember, is Gideon. They've committed the atrocity of killing the 70 sons of Gideon, Abimelech's half-brothers, Jotham's half-brothers, maybe some of them actual brothers for Jotham, or no, I shouldn't say actual, I should say full brothers for Jotham. And he's, they have killed them all on one stone in apparently some sort of line them up ceremonial ex execution on this particular stone so that they could then make Abimelech king at the oak of the pillar at Shechem. Now it's hard to go back and it's hard to know exactly which oak we're talking about and which stone we might be talking about. Was this that stone and that oak that we're talking about in Joshua chapter 24? Or, in fact, was this an oak and a stone to baal Bareth in Shechem? Hard to tell that exactly, but the parallel is clear. You have flipped on its head what you were supposed to do, and now you've made this person king in this place and in this way. Jotham gives his fable questioning their good faith and integrity in making him king. Have you acted in good faith? And of course, the fable talks about the trees and the desire of the trees who apparently want a king to reign over them. And of course, I'm not going to go through all of it. The olive tree, the fig tree, the grapevine, they all resist this call to be king over the trees and reign over the trees in the name of being true to the noble purposes that have been assigned to them by God. So they have a purpose. They have a reason to be the olive, the fig, and the grapevine. They have things that belong to them, work that belongs to them by which they say being king over the trees would be, in effect, useless compared to what I'm actually doing and what I'm actually producing. A bramble, however, is not very useful for production. A small, thorny bush, it is essentially, well, while some brambles can produce good things, the idea here of the bramble is that a bramble is essentially good for one thing, and that is fires. Brambles are good for fires, but the foolish trees who can't find someone to be a good and worthy king over them anoint a pretentious bramble. 
And the bramble has the arrogance to say, come and find shade under me. Well, you, you get the, the absurdity of this, of, of great trees finding shade underneath of a bramble. And so the people of Shechem and Abimelech, the question to them is, okay, this is what you've done. You've made this man king. You've killed all of his half-brothers. Have you acted in good faith and integrity? Because that's what you were called to do. In fact, that's what your fathers promised to do, with act with good faith and integrity, which then brings us back to the next point, which is, of course, the failure of good faith and integrity. We don't really have to wonder, do we? Have they acted in good faith and integrity? The chapter answers that. The entire chapter is comprehensive evidence of the fact that they have failed to keep covenant with Yahweh in good faith and integrity. If you recall uh, from the early chapters of Judges, Judges chapter 2 in particular and 3, as they provide sort of an introduction to the book as a whole, one of the questions that was primary in the book of Judges was a testing of the heart. In other words, the Canaanites remain in the land in order to test Israel, to see whether or not Israel would keep the commands of God. Would they stay pure? Would they follow the Lord? There's a proving that is taking place here. There's, to go back to the silver analogy, there's a heating up of Israel that is taking place here in an attempt to test whether the metal is true or not. How pure is it? And can it be refined? Can we get this to be refined so that it is any more pure? And the results of the test are spread throughout this book, and they're in this chapter as well. So what does the test reveal? Well, it reveals treachery and duplicity and murder and evil ambition, arrogance, foolishness, abuse of power, the mockery of leadership. There is no honor in the passage. There's no civility. There's no respect. There is no integrity to be found in this passage at all. Justice is turned back, and truth is lacking. That connects us with Isaiah 59 that we looked at last week. No justice, no truth, demonstrable, incontrovertible evidence of Joshua's old warning. Do you remember the warning that Joshua gave when they said, we will serve the Lord? Joshua didn't say, great, sign your names down. What Joshua said to them when they said, in Shechem, at that time, when they said, we will serve the Lord, Joshua turns to them and says, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. You are not able to do that which you are pledging to do. And when at that time the people protest such a pessimistic view of their good faith and integrity, what are you talking about? We can do this. We can pledge to serve the Lord. 
Joshua proclaims very well then. You are witnesses against yourselves. And this stone that I'm setting up, this stone is a witness against us. And so Shechem, the city wherein Abraham first settled into the land, the place where Jacob comes and buys a piece of land, where Jacob, after his meeting with Esau, sets up a temple to the Lord, Shechem, the place of the great covenant renewal, Shechem, the place where Joseph is buried. Shechem bears witness to this debacle wherein evil actions reveal the evil intent and the state of the heart. We see the call to good faith and integrity. We see the failure of good faith and integrity. And finally, in this passage, we see the keeping of good faith and integrity. Now, that might surprise you. I kind of look at this passage and say, okay, who's keeping faith here? Who's being true to the word here? When we read this passage, and certainly have we lived this passage, it would have appeared to us that the world was out of control. It would have appeared to us that, in fact, the one who reigns over us is evil. Evil reigns over us, and it is unchecked. There is nothing that can take place to thwart the fact that evil reigns over us. We might have asked, where's truth and integrity? And we would have perhaps replied in a pilot, Pontius Pilate-like way, what is truth? What's integrity? What's good faith? And think about it in this world as well. The same questions are asked. People are exposed all the time. And then we shrug our shoulders and go, yeah, where's good faith? Where's integrity? But our author is very clear in showing God's good faith and integrity in this passage. God's good faith and integrity. Here's the words, you don't have to turn to it, from Joshua 24. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do harm and consume you after having done you good. If that's what you do, if you forsake him, you serve other gods, he will do you harm. He who did you good will do you harm. Through Jotham, standing on Gerizim, God warns them again. Are you acting with good faith and acting with integrity? And then God Acts. Verse 23, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. As he said he would, God, who was with them for their good, is now God who is with them for their harm. God is keeping his word, destroying 
the destroyers of the earth. Everything in this passage is inverted. Everything is turned upside down. Sword and fire, which could protect and could purify, instead of doing that, sword and fire serve to kill and to consume. Silver can be given as an offering. It can be used in the hands of skilled laborers to produce things for the tabernacle, to produce beauty, to produce a way to serve God. And instead, silver becomes the means by which one purchases a band of thugs. Kings should serve and should protect, but here God uses, as he has been called, the bramble king to burn up the evil Shechemites. Stones, stones which could be erected as cairns, stones on which sacrifices unto Yahweh could be made. The stones become both places of death, as the 70 sons are killed on one stone, and instruments of death in the case of Abimelech. Trees, trees which God has given to produce fruit, beautiful to the eyes, remembering Genesis. Trees which you could use to build. Trees instead become used for firewood, to light fires around towers, to kill and to burn up the people who are seeking refuge in them, and towers themselves, towers which could be a place of refuge, become a place in which you are burned. Everything is inverted, and the evil itself not only comes from Abimelech, but returns on Abimelech on his head as well through a woman dropping a stone out of a tower. So when you read that, what do you think? Lucky shot? One in a million that she would drop that stone at that particular time on that particular person. Lucky shot or the exactitude of divine retribution. Verses 56 and 57, Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. The hens have come home to roost. I wanted to call this sermon Heads Up. Look out. Seeds planted years before in the naming of a son and the setting up of an ephod have grown into brambles and trees that are now fuel for fire. Your sin will find you out. It will find you out. We think that we do sins in secret and no one will know. It is not the biblical message. Your sin will find you out as clearly as any place that we have got in Scripture, the passage that we're looking at, Judges chapter 9, affirms this passage from Galatians. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. 
where the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. Sometimes in this life, always in the next. Always in the next, if not in this life. God is faithful, and he acts in integrity. God knows and cares whether or not we, his people, act in good faith and in integrity. God cares about consistency between the thoughts and the plans that we have, between the words that we speak, the things that we do, the state of our hearts. He knows them and he cares about that and he wants consistency in those things. I hope that even just saying a statement like that challenges us to self-examination and challenges us to say, okay, Lord, how can I strive after those things? How can I strive after being a man, a woman of integrity, being one who operates in true and good faith, striving to be, as the Christmas hymn puts it, pure and free from sin's alloy. But surely a statement like that, the idea that we should be that and that God cares about our integrity, surely it convicts us as well. For we know, do do we not know? We we know, don't we? We can talk about integrity, but you know, I know. We, We know the discrepancy that exists within us. We know the gap that exists the call to authenticity that we have and the reality of our lives, the reality of our thoughts and the words and the actions that we speak, uh, think, say, and do. We know the dissonance that exists within our own conscience. And so, when you get this passage and when you hear this passage, don't make the exact same mistake that the Israelites made the first time they heard a call to good faith and integrity. Don't walk out of here saying, great, we'll do it. We will serve the Lord. We will operate henceforth and forevermore in good faith and integrity. Judges should dispel such an inclination. The judgment of judges is that when it comes to good faith and integrity and operating in good faith and integrity, we are found wanting. Wanting in such things. And so what Judges says is you're going to need something else. And it doesn't provide all the answers in Judges. The rest of Scripture does that. You're going to need something else. You're going to need someone else to reign over you. You're going to need a deliverer from that. This is an evil and a sad, a wicked world full of unimaginable wickedness perpetrated by humanity, and we are part of it. We look at the world and we hunger for justice, and we say, God, what are you going to do about this? And we hear, then, words on the front of your bulletin, 
the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. There is a time coming when he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. A just and true king has entered into the world. King Jesus is full of good faith and integrity. He endured the fiery trial on our behalf and was found to be pure. Pure. No evil inside of him. And he then, who died for you, will finish the good work he has started in you. And the good work that he has started in you is making you pure and spotless, without blemish. That's the good work he's doing in you. That's what he will complete at the day of his return. When he comes back, he will reward his servants completing the process, making us pure and spotless, and he will destroy the destroyers of the earth. They will be removed and sentenced forevermore. He looked like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He looked like a, 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 not a tree, He looked like something you could just blow over. The tender daffodils that are in your yard right now will get beat down and blown down. He looked like that. But he was the tree of life. The tree of life. And there's a fruit that comes from him, the tree of life that is unto eternal life. And so may we say, with truthfulness, that is to say, with good faith and with integrity, Lord Jesus, Lord of love, come and reign over us. Reign over us. Grant us your truth and integrity and transform us. Transform us day by day into that which you would have us be. Lord God, this is an ugly passage that we have read today. And it reveals the state of humanity's hearts. It confirms so many places in Scripture that talk about the intent of our hearts. And yet when it does that, it shows us our need for a Savior and allows us to hope in you, the Lord Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for your reign in our lives. Thank you for submitting us to you, and we pray that you would continue to do that. Continue to transform us so that we can, in your name, by your grace, aspire to live in good faith and integrity of person. But thank you most of all that that is counted to us in you. We pray in your name. Amen.